Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business in other fields that we find interesting. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hey, John. Who's our first guest? Well, John, this week, our first guest is our only guest. Our first and only guest needs no introduction to true craft beer lovers. He's been one of the pioneering brewers of the craft beer movement for over 25 years. He and his beers have garnered every award that our industry can bestow several times over. His influences as a brewer can be seen, felt, and tasted in craft beers from coast to coast. As a recently elected member of the Brewers Association 2022 Board of Directors, he will be lending his talents to help guide the industry as a whole across the nation as it grows and matures. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Tommy Arthur. Thank you very much for joining us today. You know, it's a pleasure to be here. It's about damn time. (laughs) Yeah, actually... You are 100% correct. It is about time. I am uh, super stoked to actually have you on the show. It is a, uh, it's a bucket list for me to actually uh, have this conversation with you. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's my favorite. My favorite thing about podcasts is when everybody says thanks. I'm a long-time listener, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, they, they always, the introduction is always the same. So <laughs> I, try to, I try to catch, the, catch those by, by, by shocking off. I'll, I'll be honest. I have not been in the craft beer industry as long as you guys have. However, one of my first experiences was with Track 8 and Track 10 from the Lost Abbey. And John yeah. is the one that kind of exposed me to that. And ever since then... There is really no other brewery that I talk about so highly. So I, I will be very honest and tell you that was one of my first experiences with craft beer. Well, thank you. I think we were part of the pastry revolution before there was a pastry revolution. 100%. Uh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now I get the bullseye off my back. <laughs> so as we learned a few episodes ago from Jeremy DeConcini at Moto Sonora, you were homebrewing while you were an English major at Northern Arizona University. Jeremy said that his older brother, Jeff, tasted some of those first attempts at homebrewing. How did you first get into craft beer? Was there a beer that you tried in college that blew your mind that got this whole thing rolling? So when I got to NAU, uh, freshman year of college, I, I met a friend of mine whose name is Tom Gardner, and he and his dad were big beer aficionados. And they kind of took me to their wing and said, if you're going to drink beer, you have to drink good beer. Um, so we started out, you know, getting away from the uh, box beers of, of a domestic land. So no more MGD for me. Went off to... Uh, went you know north to Canada and drank a bunch of Molsons and Big Rock and anything that was Canadian at the time that was considered to be more flavorful. Um, you know, hung a right hand turn, went towards England, uh, started drinking a lot of the Samuel Smiths and anything else that was imported. Uh, made another right turn towards Germany, Belgium. Uh, kind of fell in love with the the Belgian beers at that point, um, and then kind of came back around. And basically, in the four years I was in college. Uh, working on my English degree, uh, every chance we got to go to the grocery store, liquor store, any place there was a new bottle of beer. Uh, I mean, I traveled my way through the world trying to just pick up new beers. And probably by the time I was done with college, I was, I assume I was in the north of 500 different beers, you know, probably had been tried oh, wow. uh, draft and bottle. And uh, that was kind of my, my foray into better beer was just to travel through beer. So 
when along that lines in college did you step into the idea of home brewing your own beer? So as a as luck would have it, um, Mike was a home brewer, and they wanted to get me something on the way out of college that I could use, you know, and take my passion for beer. And so they bought me a homebrew kit uh, as my graduation gift and gave it to me early. So January of 1995, I think that's when they kind of handed me the homebrew kit. That's when Jeremy's brother Jeff was still in the house, and we were kind of hanging out, and uh, that's how he got to try some of the you know the first batches of really bad homebrew. <laughs> so what were some of the first batches that you guys brewed? Well, the very first batch I remember was being a, a, a dry Irish stout. And when we carbonated the bottles and Jeff opened the first bottle and he was an avid Budweiser drinker at the time. And he said, I could drink this. I knew we were in trouble because um, it was neither dark nor roasty enough uh, to be, to be, to be offensive to him. Um, sort of the, the highlight I think for us was attempting a watermelon wheat. Uh, I think it was about the fourth batch of beer and we were trying to figure out how the F we were going to get watermelon into beer, given that watermelon is nearly impossible to work with. Um, so I latched onto the brilliant idea of using some Jolly Rancher candies. Um, of course, super fermentable and, and uh, not very flavorful when it was all done fermenting. But uh, that was that was sort of the look into the future, I think. Wait a second. So you were using watermelon Jolly Ranchers back in 95. So you were way ahead of this curve. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, we're in I, now. I, I probably started that one too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unintended consequences. Yeah. If only I'd used some marshmallow fluff, it would have been would have been really prescient. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. So when you got back in ninety five to San Diego, did you have any inkling at that time that you wanted to be a brewer? No, I actually just sort of uh, really decided that I was a really bad home brewer. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't until I was uh, working at a print shop in downtown San Diego and I'd exhausted the entire newspaper um, and waiting for the trolley to take me home that I stumbled across a help wanted ad for a, a assistant brewer at a new brew pub that was opening in downtown. And it was about a mile away from where I was working. So I went in the next day and interviewed for the position. Um, you know, I, I would have liked to say that, that I had a a purposeful path to, to craft beer, but at the same time, I just decided I was done working in the printing business. Nice, nice. What I mean, I've been to San Diego a lot, probably since 2010, 2009, started going out there. What, what was the craft beer scene like in San Diego in like 95, 96? Uh, so it was very minimal at that point. There were not a lot of licenses, although 95, 96 is a real sort of, you know, nader moment in time because uh, you had Stone and Coronado and Ballast Point and Alesmith and a bunch of uh, these really brewer, you know high-level breweries that are still doing great stuff today um, kind of get their founding their foundational legs. And so, um, you know, at that point, Carl Strauss was around. Pizza Port had Solana Beach location. Um, and there were a, a few other sort of San Diego Brewing and, and Callahan's and then San Marcos Brewery, but there weren't a ton of breweries in town necessarily. Um, so for all intents and purposes, we were known as, a, as one of the best Coors Light drinking towns in, in the nation. I think it was top three Coors Light, you know, yep. sort of places in, in all of the country. And of course, there still was a pretty big Mexican Mexican scene as well, you know, with the you know, Medela Corona stuff. Wow. So talking about Mexican, actually, your first job was at Cervecerias La Cruda under the guidance of Troy Hoyo. Uh, from what I read, that's really where you started to learn the craft and start to develop, you know, the unique point of view of, as a brewer. What do you remember about those early day, days with Troy? So I went from being a so I went from being a, a you know an extract home brewer to being an all grain brewer under his tutelage. Basically, learned the actual pathways for how beer is made. And we built the brewery kind of from the ground up. It was an old set of equipment from a brewery in town in Pacific Beach. 
uh, PB brew house that had gone out, gone under. So we were in the process of rebuilding the entire system. So I got to put the mechanical side to use. Um, and at the same time, we started talking theoretical on a daily basis. And then when it finally came time to brew, that was about the sort of the, 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 the actuality of it. Like, here's how you crack the barley. Here's what it should look like. Here's what we do. Oh, wow. You know, by the time we knock out pitchies and all these things, this is sanitation. And so I got a real, real strong sense and you know, hands on brewing in the nine months that we were open. Um, and that's kind of what led my foundation. Nice. So about a year into your career at, at this place with Troy, you guys actually won a gold medal at GABF. What was the beer that won that gold medal and what role did you play in developing it? So the beer was called Macanudo Porter. Um, it was actually the second, uh, GABF medal, that third, third GABF medal that won in San Diego at that point. Um, Pizza Porter had won one and the PB Brewhouse, the equipment that we were working on had actually won a gold medal as well in 94. Um, robust porter, a um, little bit stronger, about 7%. Um, leaned a little bit more towards roasted barley than chocolate malts. I had a nice chocolate you know, foundation, but uh, the beer was, was, was a tweener because it was a little stronger. Um, Troy wrote the recipe. It was all him. The, uh, my, my contribution was is that I, I helped mill the grains properly. <laughs> That is, that is great. I mean, credit where credit's due, right? It was yeah. Troy's book. I mean, uh, yeah, I, 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 can, I can get behind that for sure. I mean, when along those lines back then, did you think, I'm going to be really good at this? This is going to be my career. I mean, was there any waiver at all, or did you just, this is where you saw yourself going down the lines with your career path? My time at Lakruta definitely convinced me that that's something I wanted to pursue. Um, you know, I really enjoyed getting out of bed and going to work every day, and there was still a tremendous amount to learn. Um, I knew a lot about beer, beer styles at that point from having drank so many different things and read and uh, you know a lot of books and articles and things. But at the same time, I knew that the physical production of beer was something that was still I, I needed to really work on. And that's I was lucky enough to to go from Lakruta and get to White Labs and spend some time um, working at White Labs on the on the yeast side of things and yeast flavor and all of that. And then transitioned up to pizza port from there. And even when I got to pizza port, I didn't really know enough about beer to be that brewer. Um, but it was a small enough place that I could kind of bang my way through it. So after service Arias La Cruda, you actually became, you were named the head brewer at pizza port Solana beach. Pizza board has been mentioned by brewers several times on the show. What is pizza port and why is it such a big deal in the history of craft beer in San Diego? Um, it's a difficult question to answer in the hour. You've a lot of me, but here goes nothing. Uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, a very unique place and space. Um, the Solana beach location is the first, there's now five locations. Uh, Solana beach was the first one. It was built in 1987 as a pizza restaurant. The brewery came online about 1992, which in the San Diego scene was incredibly early. Um, they were known for making very aggressively flavored brew pub beers. Um, the Swami's IPA, the Boneyard's Barley Wine, the Shark Bite Red. A lot of things that were being brewed at that time were considered you know, West Coast craft, but but at a level that a lot of brew pubs weren't, weren't doing it. They were not afraid of bitterness. They were not afraid of a little bit more alcohol. Um, and it just became a really cool place uh, to go get a beer after surfing, after, you know, athletic lifestyle, go for a run, bike ride. Um, you know, it was very coastal and low key and the pizza was amazing. So, it, you know, they built something that just really worked well. And I think that one of the reasons it worked so well is that everybody was just trying to make a great experience and the pizza and the beer and, and, the, and the location was, you know, two blocks from the beach just kind of made it, made it world class. 
yeah, I mean, it is it is an awesome joint for sure, to say the least. In the eight years that you were there as head brewer at Pizza Port, the brewery won 13 GABF medals. I mean, that to me, that's unbelievable. When you won that first medal as a head brewer at Pizza Port, was it a different feeling than the first medal that you won as Troy's assistant? Yeah, absolutely, because it was, you know, it was me on my own. It was, uh, you know, it was a recipe. It wasn't something that, that we reprised um, from, from the Lacruda days. So there was a lot of that. Um, you know, it took me a few years after I got there before we figured out how to make beers that did well in the competition and, and also which beers of the portfolio we should send. Um, and a lot of the success just came from the right time, right beer, and some of the, the emerging categories. You know, a lot of the things that we won for early on at Pizza Port were pretty new categories. There was new, you know, we won, we won a silver medal as one of the first double IPAs. The, the first year they had the double IPA category. Um, you know, I won a couple of experimental medals for some barrel-aged things. Um, you know, we were entering some categories that just didn't have a lot of uh, straightforward history to them. It wasn't like this was a, a great alt beer or a killer Dortmunder. I mean, we were we were kind of living on the fringes a little bit. Was this also the time frame where you really started to experiment and kind of create those beers that would later carry on to where you are at now? I mean, I think I still remember, I think I still have in my cellar some of the bottles <laughs> from Pizza Port that you created there, um, like Cuvée de Tommy. Did that start at Pizza Port? It did, yeah, 1998-ish, 1999. Um, yeah, we had an oak barrel program. All the barrels were stored out behind the brewery, um, open to the salt air and all kinds of other cool things. But oh, wow. um, the brewery, you know, if you haven't been there to the people listening, it's a really small space. And the brewery was crammed into about three or 400 square feet of total space. And um, the one thing about the brewery that was really cool is that it had a lot of uh, small serving tanks. So we had 11 different tanks. And so at any given time, we could have 11 to 15 beers on tap with some kegs and other things. And so it gave us a lot of flexibility and, uh, you know, there was no real edict from, from Vince and Gina, the owners, to have a strong core set of beers other than things that we could rotate through. So there was always a light beer, but light wasn't light lager. It was a honey ale or a cream ale or a golden ale. Um, you know, we always had to have the Swami's IPA on tap, the shark bite. But then there was room for different kinds of brown ales. And, and then once we got the lineup kind of built up, then all of a sudden it was like, okay, let's turn our attention to um, what's experimental, what's what's Belgian, what's interesting, you know, where can we be living that just aren't going to find elsewhere. And uh, and that's kind of where some of the farmhouse beers and, and just, you know, some of the Abbey beers came from as well. Wow, that is awesome. I, I still have some of those early beers <laughs> in my cellar because they are amazing. Uh, it, it is funny how things kind of happen or work out. I mean, some people would call it kismet. I mean, you were cruising along, making great beer and, and winning awards when in 2005, Greg Cook, Stone Brewing, announced that it was moving from its old facility in San Marcos. What happened next? It's interesting because that summer we had some changes at Pizza Port and some turnover with some of the uh, other brewers that worked at the locations. And, um, you know, we, we had gotten a little bit closer together but at the same time i knew that my long-term uh plan couldn't be to be a brew pub head brewer and working in a single location um you know if i wanted a family or if i wanted to do things that were just a little bit bigger um you know at the time being a brew pub head brewer was not terribly lucrative um and so i went to vince and Gina and said look this is kind of where i'm at personally um you know there's a i'm kind of feeling a glass ceiling of sorts with respect to these locations um, you know, I wasn't an owner and they, they don't have employee ownership. And so I said, look, you know, I need to either look outside of this or look, you know, look at, at something else. And that's when the opportunity presented itself through Greg and Steve um, to kind of take over the stone space. And that's how we created this sort of second slash sister company, um, you know, that lives in and breathes on its own, but, but is intrinsically linked back to Pizza Port. 
Nice. So in 2006, you founded Port Brewing Company uh, with Vince and Gina. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but but this was the first time that you had ownership stake in a company. In, in what ways does it change your perspective from being an employee to a co-owner of, of the overall scope? Yeah, I think that the the feeling at Pizza Port was a lot of, in, you know, heavy investment, um, even from the people in the kitchen and people on the bar side. Um, you know, there's a love and a family sort of familial sense of how that business ran. And it was like, okay, we're all one big family and therefore – you, you took a lot of employee ownership and, and employee pride in that way. Um, but when it's all said and done, it's completely different to start signing documents and put your butt on the line for, you know, actually running a company and, and growing the business. And, um, you know, I used to be able to go home at, you know, I could, I could, I could put it in a 40 hour work week and, and brew some beer and go home and it wouldn't be a big deal. As long as the tanks were full in Solana beach, everybody was happy. Um, you know, you come out to a new facility and, you take over and it turns into 70 hour work weeks and that's just part of you know owning a company. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely true. So true. What was your guys' original mission of Port Brewing Company to kind of separate yourself so, from that, you know? Yeah, so so the to be very clear, the, the Stone Brewery had been here for 10 years and they had built a great clientele. Um, so we knew that we were going to operate a large tasting room facility here in San Marcos. And our goal was to take the Port Brewing brands that kind of grew out of pizza port. So Wipeout, Hop 15, Shark Attack, other beers. Um, we were making Shark Bite at that time and trying to get them to become a little bit more market driven. Um, pizza Port never really had a production facility to do that. And that's why the Port brands came, you know, kind of came to be out here. They were going to be the West Coast drivers, you know, part of the, the real craft market at the time. And then the, the Lost Abbey brand was something that Vince had kind of developed with your coin the Lost Abbey phrase. And it was obvious that we were going to use that to kind of be part of that Belgian inspired, Belgian driven, um, you know, the, the barrel aged things. And we were going to create these two, two brands and give them each their own lane and try to keep them very distinctive. And if people didn't know they were made by the same company, we felt like we were doing a pretty good job. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to Tommy Arthur of The Lost Abbey. So I know in 97, you brewed Double Overhead Abbey Ale. Do you mind just giving us a, your description of what Abbey-style ales really are? So in Belgium, there's a lot of Abbey-style beers. They're kind of what amount to be a lot of legacy brands and breweries. Some of them are, are pure labels that are owned by large conglomerates these days. Um, and then some of them are actually functionally still owned by monastic monks doing brewing or uh, under supervision by other breweries. And then, of course, there's an appellation that goes along with that, um, which are the Trappist breweries. And those are very distinctive in that uh, Trappist monasteries or Trappist monastic brewing. Um, all the profits and proceeds are, are meant to go back into serving uh, their communities and their and their missions, which is to you know promote Christianity and, and at the same time. Uh, you know, using beer as a monetary vehicle to, um, to, you know, commoditize and then profit from, um, in order to, you know, use that money philanthropically to, to do other things. I'm going to tap you for this one. What is your favorite Abbey Ale out of Belgium? My favorite Belgian Abbey Ale? Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the brewer's answer is always a revolve because it's singular. It's the only beer they make and, and it's very unique with the Britannomyces. Um, that being said, I am a very big fan of the Rochefort beers. Yes. Um, I just love the complexity of them. And I, I guess if you had to, you know, if I had to choose one of the, one of those, I might choose Rochefort eight just because it's between the six and the 10 and it drinks real nice. Yeah. I mean, in the early days of Miami craft beer, I'm talking like 2004, 2005, when 
we didn't have any i think we had gotten our first total wine down here there were no breweries that existed and i would go in there and they would bring in belgian ales and i think my go-to well obviously we didn't get west flatter obviously you know because that was every beer geeks radar beer the westy 12 but for me it was always the roachford eight that was like my go-to all day long that beer to me was what really kind of helped get me into craft beer just that that was definitely my kind of aha beer beyond i would say the firestone walker pale ale back in 2004 yeah. that kind of got me in i mean you have become known for your creative interpretations of these classic belgian style beers what really drew you to that style of beer i think the freedom um i think the permission that, that their brewing culture kind of grants um, you know, there's one thing about the Belgian people that I really love, and that's just that they have this enormous sense of pride in their, in their, in their world, their culture, their place. Um, and that translates into their beers and how they feel about them and how they present them. And there's just so much love and care that goes into, uh, the actual drinking experience from the glass, the presentation, the pour, um, you know, all of it. And if you just think about beer and you say, okay, I want my beers to matter you just look at how they really place that, that just exceptionality on everything that they do and the totality of it. And I think it's really cool and it draws you into this, like, I want, I want our beers to be held in that regard. How did the success of the Double Overhead Ale Series lead to the eventual foundation of Lost Abbey? So we had double overhead, we had single overhead, we had triple overhead, um, and then we skipped the quadruple overhead and went just for the mother of all beers and called that our quad. Um, you know, it was really fun because the double overhead recipe actually came out of my home brewing time when I was at La Cruda, so it was something I had personally worked on. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a great example, and it is, you know, sort of still being produced today in our lost and found at Abbey Ale, um, and, it, and as a recipe goes, it, it hasn't really changed much. Um, since it was first brewed back in probably 1996 in my garage. Um, and that's kind of cool in the sense that it's got this legacy of being a really, for me, a really well put together beer that didn't need to be changed much. And now it's just kind of a little bit tweaks here and there, but um, yeah, it, it laid a lot of foundations as, as one of the first bottle beers we did and something that nobody else in town. And to this day, there's not a tremendous amount of Abbey doubles being brewed in San Diego. No, I mean, that was another kind of question I want to kind of get into is, I know you've done the styles for a long time. And when we first opened for the first couple of years, I mean, I always loved Belgian style beers. I mean, triples, doubles. We've done one quad. I, I thought it was great. But we've had a hard time, besides being in Miami, like a Belgian triple will always sell. But the other ones are having a hard time for us to place. I just don't know why they've kind of fallen out of grace, I guess you could say. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about now the Lost and Found, which I told you, you know, grew out of that double overhead, is right. that uh, it's a brewer's beer. Um, Sean yes. Hill tells me all the time it's one of the best beers we make. Um, we get no credit for it. It's actually never really done well competitively. Um, that being said, it hits all the hallmarks for what a great Abbey beer is supposed to be. Flavorful, sweet, not not cloying. You know, it's got lots of yeast notes and balance and things. Um, but it, to, this, to this point, there's really not a spot where it's got – gotten us sort of notoriety and right. um i think that just for the most part a lot of people have kind of lost touch with that there's finesse in beer um we're living in, a, in the in the golden gilded age of a lack of finesse and somewhere <laughs> along the line 
it's coming back around. You see the logger movement and things that are happening. Um, and I think that we're going to get back to the lost, some of the lost styles. Um, and hopefully we'll be at the front of the line when that happens. I, I would agree with that. And almost every single brewer that I have talked to since we started this show has seen the same movement. I'm, I'm seeing it. Everybody I've talked to is seeing it that I think we're coming out of this age of let's just throw as many adjuncts or fruit into something. And basically to me, you end up with not beer anymore. You just end up with sugar in a glass. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, and I know I still strive here and I know you do too. And it's, I still want people to be able to taste the beer. I think the other component should be an, an addition to play into that profile of that beer in a glass, but you should always, always be able to taste the base beer. And if you don't to me, then it's really not beer. You know, yeah, and I think that if, if, if you're really paying attention to, to brewing historically, everybody wanted their beer to have a really strong sense of, of taste in place. And you know, that whatever that terroir is or that house character and I'm not really sure that if you add more Rice Krispie treats and more chocula, um, if you're giving the terroir any, any, any head start, or if you're just giving General Mills and Nabisco all the credit. <laughs> right, it's so a General true. Mills terroir right, instead right, exactly. of a, a brewery. Right, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, it's, but it's the same thing with the, the heavy fruited slushy styles now. I mean, to me, it's like just go down to. It's jo- fermented jo- fruit. Like, jo- go down to Jamba Juice and get a fruit smoothie. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with a little bit like 3% alcohol, maybe, in it. You know, but um, I hope we are headed back that way because, like you said, I, I am seeing this lager movement. I am seeing people coming in that just want to drink beer that tastes like beer. Well, we brewed an ESB recently, and I thought I wouldn't be able to sell it in distro, and it went. People loved it, yeah. so I was happy to hear that. Yeah. For us, the, the the toe in the line was was you know was always make it super premium and, and make make sure that people understand that there's a lot of value in what we do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely something everybody needs to take into to account is just how much time and effort goes into some of these barrel aged beers. It's a lot more yeah, time than what they realize. Yeah, and I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me, if we're talking about super premium, was the look and the feel, the bottle, the cork and cage, and the and the, the Belgian bottle and the the three part label and the artwork and just everything about, you know, us to this day, you know, our identity hasn't changed within that framework. Um, we've given people a real poster board understanding of this is when you see it, you know exactly what it is because we've been doing it that way for a long time. Yeah, I, I would agree. So when you guys first started, like when you first initiated port and lost Abbey, what was your brewing production back then? Oh, I think by the time we got to the end of year two, we were nearly 3,000 barrels. But, you know, it's always been less Abbey beer than Port beer. Um, and even today, it's, you know, we're, we're kind of still known as the Lost Abbey, you know, out in the trade. But, but we make so much less of that than the other beers. Um, it's always been about an identity. And the Abbey brand has always had the strongest sense of singular identity. So we've worked hard to make sure that that story gets told, that narrative is really well-defined. Um, and then the other beers tend to be a little bit more marketable or market, more market driven in the sense that they fit in, um, made incredibly well, good value on some, you know, some of these things. Um, but the Abbey brands have always tried to look and, and, and be American, Belgian and American or Belgian inspired. Um, and so 
they, they've always had the tightest narrative and tightest storytelling capacity. I, I know you and I have had some in-person conversations when I've come and visited you at the space itself. And we've talked about where you would find comfort at your what you would consider a comfortable overall production number. Where are you guys at now, and is that the number that you want to be at? We hit the apex number was 15,000 barrels tax paid, right. and that was a few years ago, probably 2015-ish or so. Yeah. Um, we've actually been declining ever since, which is kind of just the nature of the beast. Um, we were up a few hundred barrels last year over 2021 or 2020. Um, so last year we landed about 8,800 tax paid. Um, my comforts around there total with the different brands that we're pushing, um, you know, in that regard, the Abbey brand is probably a thousand barrels total. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, a lot of what we're doing on the Abbey side is getting smaller, um, but getting tighter with the programming in the sense that it's not, it's not going out there and dying on shelves and things. It's, it's finding the right finding the right pockets and it's living and breathing. Um, we've recently uh, put a Czech style pills called noble tendencies into cans and our devotion and farmhouse lager went back into cans or went into cans in nice. uh, early February. Um, those are things that I can completely live with on a volume play. And then we still have small batch barrel things, um, you know, that are really, really interesting and, and not terribly large case levels. Okay. And how many how many people do you actually have working in brewery operations between the two companies now? Uh, you know, here in San Marcos, there's probably between twelve to eighteen people on the floor, relative to warehousing, um, delivery drivers, production, packaging, warehouse managers, things like that. Um, all told, between the the the, all the the satellite tasting locations, we're probably about forty total employees. Wow. Um, but here at, at the main facility on any given day, there's probably between 12 and 18 people working in the building. Nice. Very nice. And we'll be right back with more from Tommy Arthur from the Lost Abbey. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Welcome back. We are here with Tommy Arthur from the Lost Abbey Brewing Company. So a little bit of a Rolling Stones reference here. Which beer do you consider to be your satisfaction? Maybe a beer that you're not even that crazy about anymore, but you'd be doing your fans a disservice if you had stopped brewing it. Well, the beer I drink every day is called Mongo. Um, it's our best-selling. It's a double IPA. Uh, it's a beautiful beer. I think it's incredible how how it's been received. It's enormously organic in the sense that it, it became a lead horse, not because we pushed it, but because of the, the pull. Um, you know, there's tremendous amount of beers that we're making these days, um, on the small batch side that I think are really interesting and amazing. Um, my favorite of late has been the peach afternoon, which is a American barrel sour or wild ale, uh, that gets married with fresh peaches. And then before packaging time, we actually, um, put some, put some white peach and tea on it. And, uh, it, the beer is just phenomenal. Um, and we've produced the second batch of it. And I think Moving forward, it's a beer that we can produce annually um, with with great consistency because the two batches have been very similar, um, and that gives me a lot of a lot of excitement towards um, doing something that's really unique, amazing, and and replicable. I have a question. One of one of the things that I was really inspired by with you guys was um, the amount of uh, fruit and the variety that you guys use in the. In the wild beers, do you use local um, farmers? I know Masumoto is in California. Yeah, we've used in California. Them mm-hmm. 
Um, a lot of the fruit that we use, I think, is is interesting in that regard. The Masamoto stuff is very specific to that so in the Fresno Bakersfield sort of region. Um, we get that fruit usually in June every year. Um, that's about the most predictable California fruit that we've gotten. Um, we've dabbled a little bit in some stuff with grapes, which I would love to see us do more of. Um, we had a, a Zinfandel beer called Zinners and Zaints um, that was really nice. And then we did a, a Sauvignon Blanc beer, which uh, was called Pale Horse, which I really loved. Um, and I enjoy grapes, drinking wine, and, and that sense of how that wine-beer hybrid can cross over. Uh, I'd love to see us do more of that. Um, our other use of fruit comes down to a lot of uh, concentrates and things that, that probably aren't very regional and might not even be American in the basis. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of fruited beers that we've done, but nothing other than the peach apricot beers that kind of live in that Massimo, or peach nectarine beers that live in that Massimo terroir. Um, but for the most part, just a lot of different fruits and, and a lot of different ways that we chase it. I also have to go back to, uh, I think, besides visiting and seeing that, Maria's other favorite thing was the cats or the cats. <laughs> That, that and the brunch yeah. before Stone's anniversary. Does that still happen, Tommy? Uh, they haven't had it for a few years. I mean, no. we, they haven't had the anniversary party, so therefore we haven't had the brunch. Okay. Um, I hope that it comes back around because it was such a great way to yes. to bring brewers and people together. Um, you know, a, side, a sidebar on that one. The reason that the, the Stone anniversary brunch, well, our brunch, which was tied to the Stone anniversary party, came to exist was that when they moved away from here, they basically told the employees that they couldn't drink the day of at the anniversary party. Right. So I said, well, wouldn't it be great if we hosted a breakfast in the morning and maybe the employees <laughs> were able to have a beer before they went to go work and therefore they weren't getting in trouble for drinking at the anniversary. Nice. Nice. I always yeah. enjoyed that brunch for sure. It was yeah. always a uh, highlight of the trip. So can you explain to the fans of your beer why they can be so hard to find? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think, I think they're a little bit easier to find these days, but at the same time, um, back, back when there was this just sort of real crazy crush, um, you know, a lot of our stuff was really small batch. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, some of these things were less than 300 case counts. Um, many of them, you know, went to consumers who, who held them, helped them, sold them, uh, traded them. And we didn't have enough cases and people to, to really get, uh, you know, we couldn't load everybody up with six bottles of things. And so, um, you know, if you had bought three and you sold the first one off to, your buddy or somebody to, to carry, carry the cost of it. The, and there just wasn't a ton of it going around. So, uh, you know, we, we did release larger batches of things um, and got some of the case totals up near a thousand, but never had that kind of, um, you know, Hunabug, dark Lord kind of, you know, darkness day, um, you know, where you, you know, 3000 people would show up and buy everything out right. you know, in a six hour period. We just, we chose to not go down that path. Yeah, I mean, I was one of those guys in the early years seeking out the early Veritas releases, the Cable Car Creek, the Yellow Bus. I mean, there was such a fervent desire to have these beers because the quality was so good and there was nobody, there was nothing else like it. And I was actually super stoked to see that you guys brought Yellow Bus back and I, you brought Creek back, am I correct? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, Yellow Bus was one of those things that we... The, the actual tree that we used to make yellow bus the first time, there's you know, the legendary story of the tree, yep. you know, bearing fruit the first year and a little bit of fruit the second year and then dying. Um, very real story. There's, you know, nothing, nothing, you know, no, no lie about that. Um, no exaggeration. And what we didn't know 
was what actual varietal of fruit that was. We knew that it was kind of an early, early white peach uh, heirloom variety. And so uh, a lot of time on the, on the internet trying to figure out what it might've been, uh, but never really could figure it out. So in, in, in the last year, um, we decided to, to kind of go after it and just choose one and see if, you know, if that was the one. And uh, I, I don't believe that it was. Um, and so maybe the, maybe the legend of yellow bus will live on annually as a, as kind of a, you know, we're chasing the, the Holy Grail and we'll figure it out. Uh, Cable Car Creek was interesting because uh, it was originally released in 20, 2011 for the 20, 20th anniversary, I think, of Tornado. Um, that was like a, a two to 300 case run total, probably not even 300 cases, probably 200. And that, that beer just became so sought after because there just wasn't a ton of it out there. Right. Um, and then we decided to reprise it this past year because it was the 20 or the 30th anniversary. And, um, kind of knew what we needed to do to get it close. Um, obviously that wasn't necessarily something we were going to get a hundred percent back at it, but very, very pleased with the results of that beer. Um, it's brilliant. I love where it's at and think that, you know, waiting as long as we did to make sure that we understood exactly how to recreate it or why we were going after it that way made sense. Yeah. And to be clear, our, our voters are kicking out some amazing beer these days. So it's making it a lot easier oh, okay. to really nail down the profiles. That is awesome to hear. Yeah, I was super stoked to see both of those beers back after drinking them so long ago. <laughs> and be like, these were great. To see them come back was definitely a great, great thing. I also want to congratulate you on your recent election to the Brewers Association Board of Directors. Briefly explain to our listeners what the Brewers Association Board is and what you hope to accomplish as a newly minted board member. So the Brewers Association has been around for quite a while. I don't remember the exact date, but it merged um, with the, 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 the Brewers Association of America and the Association of Brewers merged. I think it was sometime around 2005. Um, and the goal of the Brewers Association is to support small independent craft brewers. And these days there's about 9,000 uh, breweries in this country. And the bulk of the brewers that are making beer are making beer at about a thousand barrels or less annually. Um, so you have the range all the way from um, Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, Yingling down to guys making 200 barrels, um, you know, in places like Miami and, and even here in San Diego. And the goal of the Brewers Association has always been to, to, to promote and represent the, the craft brewers in the United States and to give them a voice and to really showcase, um, you know, how as a collective, the, 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 the sense of, of beer um, and, and small United, you know, independent breweries, um, you know, bring a lot to the, to the world in their communities. So um, I've been asked to run a, a few times in the past, and it's always been one of those things in the back of my head that I knew I needed to do as, as someone who's been a you know, contributor. Um, I've been a part of some events uh, committee and some of uh, the PRM, the marketing committee um, work. So those are, I guess that's, that's one layer, one level below um, sort of the board of directors. And I've been a big, contributor in that for a very long time. Um, I love my work on the events committee. It's a really cool part of the Brewers Association, but uh, definitely felt the need as the, as the, the membership is getting smaller to continue to represent small breweries. While we, while we make nearly 9,000 barrels of beer, I still consider us to be quite small right. um, by this, by the size standard. That being said, we're much larger than many of the constituents. Have you been a judge for the medals as well? Have I been a judge? Yeah, yeah. Like you, you you've been a tasting judge for for the for the medals, yeah, right? I, I I think I think I started judging beer back in 1999 or 2000. Um, so yeah, I've been a part of the World Beer Cup and the Great American Beer Festival for a very very long time. Can you explain what goes in for a judge tasting, say, an IPA for for sure. one of these competitions? 
So the first thing that's that's paramount is that everyone understands that that judges are, are idiots, um, <laughs> and for the most part, know nothing about know nothing about beer. Um, they're boneheads, and and, and uh, you know we're lucky to get it right when we do. Um, judging beer is serious, and it's also something that people need to understand. Um, we do blind, and I don't mean that we're blindfolded and we're given a cane. Um, we do it blind in that we don't know we don't know what we're tasting, and we have no sense of it, and we're actually you know, sort of trained and coached that if we do think um, we've identified a friend's beer or a beer that we're kind of really, you know, very keen that, and that we self uh, sort of, you know, self excuse and, and make, make it a point to not, uh, you know, enter that conversation. So it's important that people understand that uh, beer judging is a, is a very serious thing. While it sounds fun, uh, it's an enormous amount of work. Uh, typically when we arrive for judging, it's a, we start judging at nine in the morning you sit at tables. Usually the table is, is six people. It's split in half. One half of the table is working on anywhere from 10 to 12 um, beers. They're just numbered and they come to your table in cups. And then you do sensory analysis across the footprint, which is anywhere from uh, aroma, taste, uh, clarity, carbonation, aftertaste, mouthfeel, overall balance. And your goal is to find the three best beers on the table um, collectively uh, associate those with being the best three in the flight and move them forward so that another round of judges can continue to judge them until ultimately um, there's nothing left but the three best beers at, at the final table. Is it palate exhausting? It can be. Um, I tend to prefer judging categories that have movement. Um, I like to um, sort of target categories that have lots of range in them. Um, whereas if you were to judge the Meritson beer category or the <laughs> right. robust porter category, you could get a lot of fatigue because they're getting the same intensities. Um, right. And so for me, I've always put more time and energy into wanting to judge categories where there's movement. And the movement's important because it allows your palate to kind of recover. But, uh, you know, you sit down with 12 oatmeal stouts and, and it's uh, pretty <laughs> right. pretty intense because it's, it's, you know, again, same, you know, according to style, they're very similar hop, similar dryness, similar bitterness. Um, similar ashy notes, chalky notes, like all of it. Yeah. Um, I don't like darker categories. Okay. Um, I was just wondering if the Brewers Association has any sort of, um, I guess, counsel in the sense there was a bill introduced in Florida to the Florida legislature that would have allowed uh, craft breweries to self-distribute within their county and adjacent counties. And yesterday we found out that the bill was killed completely, obviously by AB and whoever are other distributors. Just, just call them larger entities. Yes. yes. Um, so I was wondering if, if, if there's a support within the Brewers Association, um, because in Florida it hasn't been successful for us, um, mm -hmm. for us to push for you know our small business. Yeah, so the Brewers Association works, and I'm going to try to do my best to not speak out of turn here. The Brewers Association works sort of on a, on a, on a, on a U.S. domestic level, but they also support down to the, to the guild level. And so um, there, there's a lot of guild level stuff that happens in Florida and California and elsewhere. And the Brewers Association is keenly aware of those things. Um, they do have a legislative uh, sort of arm these days. And there's a lot of uh, things that are happening at the federal level to support those pieces um, at the state level. They, they do a lot of work to support the guilds to, to, to work on that, that stuff in California. We've got a bunch of things currently being looked at for self-distribution, um, and uh, that, that's a big piece. You asked about council. The Brewers Association does employ uh, Mark Serini, who is, is in charge of being uh, legal counsel to, you know, to represent the BA. 
and to help guide some of those those things. But um, you know, I assume that your your state guild leader, whoever that may be, is is probably well in in, in conversations and deep in conversations with the VA about what's next and and, and kind of the, the the loss yesterday, or right? The state fight or the federal fight, but uh, it has to be done. Yes, I agree with that. What are a few of the most challenging trends that are in our industry right now? What would you say those are? I think you're talking specific to the beer trends, or are you talking about just in general business stuff? General business. All right. I think that, um, I mean, I, I'm living this dream every day. So um, first and foremost has been the, 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 whole, the whole great reset that COVID caused. Um, and I'm not here to speak about COVID, but, but basically, um, you know, the employment landscape got slaughtered. Um, our cost of goods landscape through supply chain things got slaughtered. Um, and just the people's understanding right now with inflation and wages and gas and things, um, there's a tremendous pressure on running your business. Is there any other trends you see business-wise that, that we're heading? I mean, I, I think I see the days of these businesses being bought out as almost done with? I mean, do you agree with that or do you think that's still a possibility? No, I think there's, I think there's a lot of hidden money that we don't know uh, how people did stuff. And I think there's some reckoning, um, whether it was PE or other, other family office or people that may have invested in an emerging space and it's not, um, it's not really returning. And so that becomes a real question of what's going to happen there. Um, I think there's a stagnation that's happened where a lot of breweries were projected to grow and didn't. And so the question becomes, you know, what, what does that look like with regard to their covenants, to their bank debt service, et cetera. Um, government did a great job printing money the last two years and handing it out for, for free. And that money's dried up. And on top of that, the, the, the experience on a daily basis is, you know, what's, what's in short supply and what costs more than it did yesterday. And, you know, from cans and everybody went to cans to right. uh, barley pricing, um, darn near everything that we, bring into this building now has gone up and experienced tremendous pressure and doesn't seem to really, I don't know where the correction is going to fall. You know, is it going to take two years and is it going to correct or is that just where we're going to be living moving forward? Right. No, I, I agree with that. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds nowadays going forward to flip from the business to the industry itself. What do you find most challenging or working you would say in the industry as far as the industry not business wise yeah i think a lot of breweries like us that have been around for 15 plus years um are gonna have to figure out what the right scale is um you know we were we were kind of building a brewery and growing to a certain number and we thought we might become a thirty thousand barrel a year brewery and be in eight states and now all of a sudden you know, cost of shipping makes it prohibitive to send pallets to Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And now all of a sudden, you know, are we looking at that kind of that new Glarus model where it's like, yeah, we should sell all of our beer in California. And therefore we should only be a 10,000 barrel a year brewery in California and live and die by that. Um, which is fine. Again, we went through this really crazy time and, um, you know, Greg Cook from Stone Brewery sort of tagged it a few years back and said we were living in a period of irrational exuberance and, I think foundationally a lot of breweries made decisions um, because they were projecting and they didn't really know how to, to project. And it wasn't, how how do you project growth when there's nothing but infinite white space in front of you? And now, um, you know, reasonable growth would be 3% a year or keeping up with things like that. And I don't know, I feel, 
I feel good because we're a small brewery, although we still have a lot. We, we, again, we, we look much bigger. Um, but, you know, what, what is your debt service? What do your covenants look like? And, you know, which bills can you afford to pay? And then on the flip side, what trends are you most excited about within the industry? Clear beer. Um, people are using go. filters again. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about beer, um, hopefully returning to being shelf stable, um, <laughs> normal, normalized consumer behavior. Um, yeah. Consumers returning to places that really are, are of value, not of, of newness. Right. Um, I just think that we can't all live on the everything has to be hazy bench. Um, and if you're going to all sit at the same bench, how do I convince the consumer, you know, my bench is more comfortable? Right. Because we haven't really jumped on that fruit slushy thing. I mean, do we make hazy IPAs? Yes, but I don't think we live and die by those. I mean, we haven't changed our stouts at all. They are adjunct stouts, but it is not. It's been the same way for seven years. Like, I've, we've never gone down the route of I've just pure of, sugar. I've kind of fought against the I know you fruit have. smoothie. I know. We've done one or two, but still not on that level where you open a can and it looks like just or someone opened a bag of concentrate. Or, or it's going to explode. Puree. Right. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah. I think it's akin. I think it's akin to like almost being on a sailboat, right? And there's always shifting winds, and you have to decide which. You know, if you're all sailing in the same direction, you have to decide which. You know, which tack you're going to take and how you're going to go. And if you you choose to take the the starboard tack, and everybody's off to the port, um, and there's no wind out there, but but you continue to do it, and you get there slower, but you still get there. Um, maybe that's the win because you got there and you didn't have to deviate. That being said, there's a lot of people that I think get out of bed every day, see something on Insta and go, God, I should try that or do that. Right. Cause that's what the market, that's what the market demands. And I'm not sure that the market is demanding it as much as a specific consumer is. And right. is that consumer somebody that we, that we talk to? Probably not. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. I think it's very fickle what people like they'll, they'll be into it today, but tomorrow it's right. Whatever else. Constantly changing. Interest. Yeah. What advice would you give a young home brewer who aspires to be the next Tommy Arthur? Well, Tommy would say on behalf of Tommy that that's a difficult thing because no one thinks like Tommy. Um, but, you know, you, you probably should learn your inner Tommy voice. Um, you know, I, I, I got to be who I am because I trusted myself and I trusted my talents and, um, and I didn't do things that I didn't want to do. I was very lucky at Pizza Port that nobody – Nobody asked me to make loggers I didn't want to make or nobody put cost centers on things and said, you can't do that. Um, and those are my partners today. So I chose my partners based upon a really strong sense of what we wanted to accomplish. Um, I've been very lucky to, you know, have basically for the last 25 years or so uh, worked with Vince and Gina, worked for and with them. And they've given me the freedom both, you know, uh, on a, on a passion level to pursue things. They've given me the freedom artistically and even financially um, to do things that maybe don't always make sense. Um, but that, that collective ride has been very successful. So to the home brewer out there, um, I always remind them that this is a damn hard job. Yeah, it seems fun. And I'm having a beer in the morning um, while we're recording a podcast on a Tuesday, <laughs> right. uh, but I have real work to do this afternoon. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's how it's going to be. So be prepared to work hard. And uh, you have to obviously know your inner Tommy voice, of course. Yes. <laughs> I got one last question for you here. When is the last time you had a can or bottle of butter PBR? Of butter PBR? Yeah. Um, it hasn't been that long. Uh, I typically drink Coors Banquet when it comes to those things. Okay. Um, All right. I, 
I have a neighbor who slays Bud Light for a living, um, and I probably had a Bud Light in his front yard within the last two months. Okay. I had my first Corona about three weeks ago. I don't know if I'd go as far as Corona, but uh, PBR, absolutely. You know, PBR. Uh, Have you ever done a PBR Coors side-by-side? No, I have not. Yeah, that's very interesting, that the level of sweetness, because both, I think Coors has has a little bit of sweetness, but the PBR is even sweeter, so... It's worth trying them side by side just to. Okay. To, are we are we talking Coors Banquet here? Coors Banquet, yeah. Okay. OG. Okay. Preferably uh, the stubby, preferably the stubby bottle if you can get it home <laughs> on that. You know, cans cans acceptable, but yeah. You know, okay. Got to be stubby bottle. I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to try that out here. We're gonna do a side yeah. by side. I'll bring it in. But Tommy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, come on the uh, yeah, it's been show. Fun. Thanks for giving me a reason to drink beer in the morning. Yeah, the, <laughs> the only thing that would top this is a collaboration, which no, I think he's hounded no, you about no, for the I, last seven years. No, no. All right, well, well, we'll have to figure it out. I was just in Tampa last weekend, so I, uh, I, I made my first foray to Florida, and I didn't come see you guys. I apologize. It's That's okay. okay. That's okay. Miami we, is, we, is, is not part of Florida. No, no. We're, it's we're another different. state. Well, yeah. instead... Now I know how to get there. Okay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now you just got to come down here with Adam, so it will be all good yeah. then. <laughs> well, have a good day. It, it's been awesome, Tommy. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you guys. Thanks for the time. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Tommy Arthur, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review, a good one, of course. Remember, people, the thirst is real.